You are listening to Addiction Support Podcast, episode number 39. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. Hi there. Welcome back to Addiction Support Podcast. This week, we are doing something a little bit different. It is the first in the series of six podcasts that I'm doing with one person. So Dr. Dean Robb from a few podcasts ago, and I are going over um, some of his work in more of a deep and meaningful and hopefully empowering way for you to be able to take what he's teaching to the next level. And of course, if you want to get a hold of him, he does leave all of his information at the end of the podcast, but you can always go back to the show notes. This week's show notes are addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 39, or if you go to addictionsupportpodcast.com, it'll be on the homepage and you can just go in there and find all the different ways to contact Dr. Rob and go ahead and do that. This week, we are going to jump right into realizing your potential in recovery. All right. So this is really exciting. This is the first for me. I haven't done video before. So thank you for being the first person to come on and do video podcast or whatever we end up doing with it. Thank you. Great. Sounds like fun. Yeah, we'll have a good time. So, um, Last week in the last episode, I did a little teaser and let everybody know that we were going to do a series of six. So even though, um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that's going to be emotionally, maybe not draining, but definitely taxing for you. So thank you for being willing to do this with me. I'm, I'm excited about the value that we'll be able to create with it. I hope so. I think so, actually. I think so, too, especially with video and having it so that people can see us as well as hear us. Um, and so this week we're going into realizing your potential in recovery and, um, you know, we, we haven't scripted anything. We haven't talked about any questions or anything. Let's just jump into it. And if I have anything that comes up, I'm going to ask you questions. Otherwise I'm just excited. I'm going to be taking some notes and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share. Absolutely. So tell me why this topic, like. What is it specifically about this topic that's important to you? Um, that's an excellent question. And it I didn't realize it for many years, but it's actually probably for me the central question or issue of my life. And it took me many years in recovery or several to begin to understand that. And I think that really understanding that, why it's important and where it comes from, I have to talk about where it came from. And that, thank you for, by the way, saying that it's somewhat taxing emotionally, because it is. I never thought of that, but you're right. So thank you for that. And um, the reason is I have to talk about what I'm about to talk about. I was brought up in a really extremely dysfunctional, uh, abusive, physical, emotional, spiritual abuse, and I was traumatized by it quite deeply. And one, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole story because that would probably take up an hour by itself, but one of the most important things is that my father I don't know why, but he basically was unable 
to tolerate me as a separate human being from himself. He, it took me a little while. I need a glass, a little bit of water. Yes, I'll, please. Because this is taxing. I don't know why, but he needed me to basically be a carbon copy of him. And that goes down to like, what is your favorite color? Things like that. And if I differed from, with, from him in just about anything, I would face, you know, an explosive outburst of anger and sometimes, you know, physical abuse because I don't, I don't think he was able to tolerate the idea that I was separate from him on some level or an independent person. So I didn't. I grew up having almost no idea of who I am really at all. And this situation was reinforced, and again, it took me a while to realize that, by the religion that I was brought up in which was quite fundamentalist and very shaming. And one of its core messages, which again took me years to sort of decode, was that being faithful to God meant being literally a slave to God. And the message again was that having an identity and a will and a direction of your own was explicitly sinful, you were supposed to, I guess, vacate your identity and give up yourself to God and sort of pour yourself out to God. And I don't know if I took that message wrong, but to me that meant becoming a nothing and a nobody, um, which fit, so I got it from both directions from my, my family and from my religion. And that affected my choices in life. I made terrible decisions about relationships, um, particularly about career, because I just quite literally had no idea who I was. And so I didn't have any basis to make those decisions. And so I was heavily influenced by outside factors and then, 31 some years ago, I, I came into recovery from substance abuse, which I used as medicine all those years to dull the pain. And what I learned from some of the basic texts was, and this is basically from the uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it it's something akin to the same way of thinking, basically, that you're, what the language that it uses, all your problems can be traced to self. Okay. And okay. that your, yourself, your own will, is what gets you into trouble. Well, that to me is extremely close to saying you should be a nobody and a nothing. And in fact, the uh, 11th step of the steps says you should pray to God seeking only for the knowledge of God's will and not, nothing else. In other words, your will is quite irrelevant to the picture. 
this troubled me deeply for many years, and it made it very difficult for me to formulate any kind of spirituality on a deep level because I felt like I was um, being asked to become a slave to a dictator, to be blunt. And I wasn't going to do that. I'd, I'd spent a good part of my life doing just that, and that was how I became, you know, a drug substance abuser in the first place. Right. And what happened, probably about the five or six year mark, is I discovered the writings, among others, of Carl Jung. And his, the basis of his um, psychology, which he calls analytical psychology, is the concept of, and it's a technical term, which I'll go into, it's called individuation. And what he says, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if you boil it down, it basically says that each person has the God image living within them and at the same time, each person is utterly unique. Hmm. And that the purpose of life isn't just to become useful, and I'll, I'll return to that in a minute because I forgot about it earlier, but um, to become useful in alignment with or in accordance with who you really are. That's nice. Yeah. That resonates. And when I was in um, the early years of my recovery, using the big book and all of that, uh, the message, if you boil it down, is that recovery means becoming a useful member of society. And that's all well and good, but my question is on whose terms? That's a good point. I was taught that it was on everybody else's terms, and my job was to you know, twist myself into a pretzel to fit in and conform hmm. and to become a cog in the societal machine. Well, I tried that very hard, and it came very, very, very close to killing me completely. It destroyed my soul. It destroyed everything. I, and here I was hearing it again. Um, at least that's how it came across to me. So when I came across this, I started researching into it, the idea of individuation, which if you, in simplest terms, means fulfillment or realization of the self. That means becoming whole, becoming um, healed uh, of, you know, whatever happened to you, especially trauma and living an integrated life that is in alignment with your God-given identity, not necessarily the identity that was sort of imposed on you by parents, by schools, by society at large, by where you grew up, by your ethnic group. I mean, all these pressures when we're growing up try to tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people grow up and they're 40 and 50 years old and realize, oh my God, I've spent this whole life living a lie. Well, that's what happened to me. And I decided I'm done with that. Um, tried it, didn't work, almost killed me. And so I started embarking on this new journey, 
of fulfillment of the self, realization of the self. And that doesn't mean selfishness, which a lot of recovery people seem to confuse that with. Because um, it they doesn't think that put, being who you are is selfish, or is it just a message no, that I, gets confused? I think they get confused, and that's really to me partly because the Ameri the English language has such a lousy. We don't have enough words for the notion of self. Right. There's selfish, which means putting yourself ahead of other people. There's self-centered, which means experiencing the world as though it revolves around you. And then there's the self, which is your authentic inner identity. And we only have one word to describe all three of those things. And they're quite distinct. Yeah. You know, I don't think becoming who God created you is a selfish, selfish act. No. No. But I, I could see how if someone is, was in a position where they were used to getting certain things from you and you were no longer providing that, then they could call you selfish, right? There yes, could be manipulation that is the that primary happens. tool. That's yeah. the, one of the primary tools that people use in codependent relationships to get you to come back mm. to where they, they want you to be is you're selfish, you're self-centered. And basically what that translates into, you're not doing what I want you to do anymore. <laughs> you're not letting me control you. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm mad about that. That's interesting. Do you find that with the people that you're coaching, and obviously I don't want you to break any um, confidentiality, but are they, have they had similar stories in that they thought they were supposed to be one way and they were having a really hard time fitting in for a long time? Absolutely, yeah. 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 There's one uh, guy I know pretty well now who was raised, both his mother and his father were in the Marine Corps. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that <laughs> almost sums it up. And he was brought up to be a tough warrior type person. In fact, he joined the Marine Corps and it literally almost killed him. The abuse that he suffered was just horrendous and uh, he, he, he quit but he struggled with that his whole life he has this he came to think of himself as a man being this highly macho very defended you know strong domineering uh, militant type of guy and um, at about the 25 to 22 year mark in recovery that all started to fall apart um, he actually ended up homeless without drinking or using substance. Just his whole world fell apart because all of his um, coping strategies and his identity just caved in. And now he's very seriously embarking on this phase of recovery, of recovering who he really is. And... Um, he discovered, or maybe it was, I don't remember which of us discovered a Zen saying, they call them koans, that says, what did your face look like before your parents were born? Hmm. Yeah. I'm writing that down. That's fascinating. Yeah. Struggle with that one for a while. <laughs> I will. 
<laughs> I'm going to tweet it out too when we send this out. What did your face look like before your parents were born? Yeah, and to me what that means is it's asking you to discover and uncover the identity that was created in you by God when you were in union with God before you came here mm -hmm. and your parents got a hold of you and in society and started to mold you. Wow. That's one way to really get in deep with who the question of who am I and why am I here, right? I mean, that goes Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating. A lot of times people, you know, so I'll use myself as an example. So I don't have a chemical addiction. And so it's really easy for someone like me, I think, to think, oh, well, as long as they're off the drugs or the alcohol or whatever the addiction is, then everything's going to be fine. And I love the fact that you go in deeper and, and say, no, like that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now we got to do yeah. the real work. You yes. know? And, and the realizing your, your potential in recovery, like it's one thing for someone, I think, to go to meetings for years and years and years and say that they're in recovery. It's another thing for them to go in and find out who they are and why are they here and really tap into as much of that potential as they can. All too true. Um, there are lots of people in recovery, I don't want to name any names and I never would, that have, you know, 20 and 30 years that are, I don't want to, highly dysfunctional, let's say, in their relationships and in work and things like that. And it's because they didn't do this work that the reason they're dysfunctional is because they were brought up in dysfunctional, abusive families. That's what they know. That's normal for them. I think it's, well, yeah, and they don't recognize it. They right. don't, I don't think many of them want to recognize them. And, or as a, and I, don't, I don't blame them because, you know, dealing with it is painful. Yeah. But one thing substance abusers hate is pain. Right. Um... So we delay it as much as possible, if possible. And so there's lots of dodges. Um, but the problem is that um, the traditional literature doesn't really address this. It, you know, it asks you to take inventory of things like resentments and your self-centeredness and fears and maybe your sex conduct. But that stuff was written in the late 1930s. You know, that's a long time ago. Right. And we've learned a lot since then that's not included. So I think that stuff is that's in the traditional literature is basically helping you. It's not dysfunctional. It's functional. It's helping you recover to the point where you can carry on a useful, um, mostly functional life uh, in society, but it doesn't go that next step of what I want to talk about doing that deeper inner work of, of the trauma that happened to you and how it, it shaped your perception of your identity 
and I use that word intentionally, perception, because it's usually a false identity. To survive, a child to survive in an abusive environment becomes what the parent needs them to be. So they grow up with a false identity, and that can stay with you for your whole life if you don't deal with it. And so this next layer is looking at that stuff and um, becoming healed. But then there's actually more work, and that's what I call underneath that, sort of compacted away, is your, your inner gold. And that's the stuff I think that is God-given, you know, like Picasso. Yeah. You know, that was his gold. I mean, can you imagine him growing up with a father that forced him to become an accountant <laughs> or something like that, you know? Right. Can you I, imagine what that had done to him? That would have destroyed him and it would have been sad for the rest of us. We would have missed out on all of his beauty mm -hmm. that he brought. Um, if this isn't the right one to go into, let me know. But I'm kind of curious if you're interested in taking us through your journey of going in and unpacking some of that stuff and starting to heal. Like you were already sober at the time, right? When you decided yes. to do some of that. Yes. So what was it that made you realize that you wanted to go deeper? Well, it wasn't anything pleasant. Um, I had about two years or so before I got involved with any kind of uh, intimate relationships, but I did just a little bit after I had two years. And after several months, that relationship anyway was quite dysfunctional. And idea of what was going on, but it, it really did a number on me. It devastated me, and I was so devastated to the point that I, you know, felt like I should probably check myself in somewhere, like I was suicidal and stuff, and luckily, my sponsor at that time, who's a rather enlightened person for the time, said, Dean, I, I think you need to do two things. I think you need to get into therapy, and I think you need to join or investigate this new fellowship that I believe was just starting out at the time, and it was ACOA meetings, Adult Children of Alcoholics. Oh. And so that's what I did. And... I recall distinctly going to an ACOA meeting and having my mind promptly blown when they read what is called the laundry list. I don't have it at my fingertips, but it's a, it's a list literally of uh, behaviors, dysfunctional behaviors that are very, very common to people that grow up with uh, dysfunction, abuse, trauma, and alcoholic parents. I had never seen anything like this before, and 
I was like, oh my God, this is like an x-ray of, of me. And I knew that I was in the right place. And I went through a journey of trying to find a therapist. I, I audited or whatever, like five or six, gave them a couple of sessions. But for the first time in my life, this is literally true, I paid attention to my gut. And my gut was saying, this guy isn't right. This guy isn't right. And then I met the right one. And he started asking questions of me. It was like a surgeon going in and, you know, taking a little piece out. And I was like, oh, my God, you got me. <laughs> and uh, he, was, he was just the right guy. He had a lot of experience with childhood trauma. Mm. That was his specialty. And so I went to him for, I'm not really sure, at least 12 years. That's how messed up and damaged I was. And it was intensive the whole time. Wow. And I did the ACOA. I also joined Codependence Anonymous in there, too. And I did all of that for, I don't know, 14 to 16 years religiously. And then I, I stopped going, at least religiously. Um, but I try to stay current, you know, with the literature. And I do a lot of reading about the Jungian stuff, which I find very nourishing to my soul. So I don't, did that answer your question? I think so. Yeah. One thing that I know we touched on when we did your last podcast, but I just want to, you know, inspire a little hope. We talked about like how, especially addicts want to run from pain, but I've found when I go through and I embrace whatever it is that I'm feeling, be it pain or anger or whatever it is, and I just let that kind of settle in and I go through that, I mm -hmm. feel so amazing on the other side. I have so much more power and energy. And I don't know, I just it's wonder true. what your experience of that was. Absolutely right. Because what's happening, um, especially when you're grieving, like the past and, and how, is you are... It's hard to put this into words, but you are reclaiming parts of yourself that you have suppressed, pushed down for all these years. And what's going on is a psychological process of integration. You're taking all of you and bit by bit, you're putting it back in its place. And that feels darn good because that's the, what healing is, yeah, is yeah. recapturing and putting all of that stuff back where it belongs as part of you instead of like a, a cast off. That which you um, resist persists and repress, if you repress something into the unconscious, it rules your life, mm -hmm. but unconsciously. So if you if you let it come up, it can the initial there can be a lot of pain associated with that. But like you said, on the other side, there's usually a tremendous sense of peace. And I've had episodes where I was in serious depression for weeks, and finally, I would like this big chunk of grief would come up, you know, just sobbing. And then when I was done with it, the depression was gone. Yeah. I mean, gone. And that's when I understood what depression is, at least 
at parts of it that it's, you know, keeping things down. Not allowing yourself to grieve and feel what we think might be pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a friend a few years ago that put it to me like this. I'm going to share this because I think it's a fun analogy. Basically, he said, whatever you um, like, feel your emotions a little bit and then push them down, it's like shooting a bow and arrow and only pulling it back a little bit and then letting it go. That arrow just flops down. But when you pull back all the way and then you aim your arrow and you let that go, that energy flies and you're able to accomplish things so much faster. And that gave me permission to feel my theme was like anger. I always, I was never angry. I always had a smile, but really I had, I had somebody tell me one time, she's like, you have a river of anger that's running right underneath that smile. Mm. And um, even with my kids now, I teach them that if they're feeling angry or if I'm feeling angry, I'll go scream it out in my bed or like in a pillow or punch that bed or something and just get, th get it all out. Mm -hmm. And it feels so good afterwards. But I think, um, I think it'd be really amazing if we could teach our teachers in school how to I process that. And then they could teach that to the kids, you know, and that would might, be so wonderful. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd not just great. intellectual in education, that emotional intelligence, emotional education and intelligence too. Yeah. You know, I just got back from a conference in Vegas last week and they said by the year 2020 or whatever year it's going to be 2023, emotional intelligence is going to be one of the number one things that employers are looking for. So, I hope so. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Considering the fact that we don't even know how to really grade somebody on their emotional intelligence, right? Well, there are um, tests out there, oh, there assessments. Are. Yeah. The, the, some of which you can do online, and there are consulting firms that will come into companies, and I'm not sure how it works, but they do some, I don't, I don't know if the word tests is correct, they'd probably say assessments or evaluations that um, purport to measure certain zones or areas of emotional intelligence. I think I remember the basic ones. One is uh, self-regulation, the ability, well first it's recognition, the ability to recognize you know what you're feeling and the next part is the ability to process, you know, process it, to feel it and um, let it pass through. Um, all of that takes self-awareness. I think that's yeah. fundamental. I'm probably jumping around because I haven't read that stuff in several years, but it does take self-awareness. Um, then there's social awareness, interpersonal awareness, which means you know becoming aware of what other people are going through and feeling. And um, the last and the ability then to connect with them, you know, in a healthy way. And then I think the last part might be something along the lines of, um, I should, I'm probably putting my foot on in it, but um, the ability to sort of build networks, things mm. like that. I could easily be wrong. Like I said, <laughs> I don't think so. I think you're, I think you're right on. And I think that you know, it all goes back to what we started this with, and that's knowing yourself, mm -hmm. embracing who you are, and you can't do that until you've really 
come to terms with some things and put some of the right. pieces back together. Yeah, the problem is that you can't, here is a problem that people hate. I hated it. There's no way to go and find that inner gold without passing through that stuff that surrounds it. Yeah. And, you know, I said this before, I've hired coaches for different things. I think it's difficult. I don't know that you can do it on your own. I think you, yeah. you need a coach or you need help. And Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the things I love about coaching is in my experience, you usually can get your results a lot faster if you're willing to be coachable and do the work and really go all in, mm -hmm. you know, faster than maybe therapy or maybe doing it on your own. Mm -hmm. Doing it on your own for me, it was totally impossible because that's what I'd been trying. Yeah. And it didn't get me anywhere. I had no insight and no capacity to build insight. Uh, it took, you know, some help. Yeah. And that's necessary. So, um, we've been going for about 38 minutes here. Do you have, like, how would you recap this and put a bow on it with the realizing your potential in recovery? Let me think for one second. I'll only take a second. Um, let, let me say that I think the goal of recovery is um, emotional and spiritual maturity. And not just becoming useful, because you can be profoundly immature and still be useful. Right. Um, and to do that, you have to develop compassion for yourself, which means giving up on beating yourself and accepting who you are on a very deep level, which means accepting all the things that happen to you all the things that are left in there, um, letting them come to you finally, all the stuff that you've been burying, let it flow, and you know, find that inner goal that I, I believe that is, was put in there by God. I mean, why would God create individuals if the purpose of life was to stamp out individuality and just become a cog in a machine. That makes no sense to me at all. Yeah. You know, so the goal is to realize who you really are, become healed, whole, integrated, and live a life that is in alignment with who you really are. Giving back, yes, but from what you are, had a conversation with my brother last week and we, we were raised really religious as well, fundamental. And one of the things that's coming to mind right now is the Bible says something about putting your own house in order first before you're able to give to others. Yes. And this is the same type of thing, putting your own soul in order and taking care of yourself mm -hmm. so that you can give. I think so. If you don't, your giving will be tainted. Mm -hmm with a lot of dysfunction that you're going to have a negative impact on that person or group that you think you're helping. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited about our next uh, interviews that we're going to do as well. Before I let you go, will you tell everybody where they can find you? 
Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Dr. Dean Robb, my website is www.nextstagerecovery.com. Um, you can read all about it there and read my blog. You can look at the podcasts I've been doing. Um, you can reach me on my home office, which is area code 908-757-4721, or by email at drrob, D-R-R-O-B-B, at nextstagerecovery.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I look forward to sharing with you next week when Dr. Dean and I go over discovering your inner gold, doing the work. Until next time, I see you surrounded with light and love and I love you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. www.addictionsupportpodcast.com. 